Hopefully you found your way to Matthew chapter 6, and, uh, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 13, um, specifically keying in on verse 13 this morning. Uh, let's all stand together as we read uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. You can read from your Bibles. The uh, words are on the screens behind me. You may uh, also know these uh, verses by heart, and so feel free to uh, recite them. We'll be reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. Uh, read this aloud with me this morning, uh, beginning in verse 9. Jesus said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Sermon on the Mount which takes place in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the, the sermon in which Jesus delivers this instruction on how to pray. The Sermon on the Mount is, if nothing else, a sermon about the kind of life that is pleasing to God, the life of a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that life of a kingdom citizen, above all, is one that is marked by holiness and a despising of sin. In fact, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, I hope you make time to do that this week, you'll find that Jesus frequently gives a standard for moral conduct and kingdom living that appears unattainable. He says as much in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yet we know that even from what we saw last week in Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, that we are in fact far from perfect. We fall short of the holiness of our Father all the time. We are egregiously sinful. We need forgiveness of sins from God every day. So how then can we be holy? How can we be perfect like God is, even as Jesus says we must be? Well, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is not to make us perfect, not to instruct us how to live so much a perfect life, but rather to show us that on our own, we cannot be perfect. Jesus shows the standard of perfection we must have, and in his sermon on the mount demonstrates to us we cannot on our own attain that standard. We need the help of God himself to make us holy, to make us perfect. This help God does give to us by giving his son, Jesus, who is God made human to live a life of perfect, sinless holiness, to lay down his life as a sacrifice on a Roman cross to pay the debt for our sin, the debt that we owe God for our sin. God's infinite bounty of forgiveness and his gift of the holiness that we must have, Jesus says, comes to us when we trust in Christ as Lord and submit our whole lives to him. So how is it that we achieve perfection? How is it we are perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect? Well, not on our own. It is because Christ himself gives us that righteousness, that holiness, that perfection. uh, One that we did not have, but that he gives to us as we trust in him, his death and resurrection for us. Friends, that's the gospel truth. All of the Sermon on the Mount is pointing us to the reality of the gospel, that we need a savior for our sins. We need someone to make us perfect because we cannot be perfect. Friend, if you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, normally I wait to get to this call to gospel response toward the end of our sermon today, but if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you don't know Christ as Savior, this is the truth that God uh, speaks to us from his word, that he wants to make you right, he wants to make you holy and righteous, in right standing with him, to forgive you of your sins, and, and that by you trusting in Jesus, his son, God in flesh, 
who gave his life as a sacrifice, a purifying, cleansing sacrifice for your sins. Friends, if you don't know Jesus this way, you are without hope to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You are without hope to know God who created you. I pray that you would come to know Christ today to see the goodness of the gospel. This is the truth of the gospel, that Jesus makes us holy. He makes us right with God. But holiness, friends, is not only a status to receive by faith in Christ. Holiness is also a life to be lived in the power of God. God, who makes us holy and standing by faith in his Son, also calls us to persevere in our own strength. And even at, at that, at times, we do not recognize, excuse me, he calls us to persevere in holy living as Christians. This gracious God knows, as he calls us to persevere, that we cannot do this in our own strength. And even that, at times, we do not recognize our need to persevere. And so his Son, Jesus, teaches us, In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, this final verse of the Lord's Prayer, model prayer, disciple prayer, whatever you're accustomed to calling it, Jesus teaches us here how we ought to pray for perseverance in the holiness that God has called us to. Verse 13, Jesus says, lead us, he he instructs us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the first half of this verse, the first clause, lead us not into temptation, Jesus teaches us to pray uh, preventive, preventatively for perseverance. I should have chosen an easier word to say. <laughs> Pray preventatively for perseverance. When Jesus teaches his listeners here, and we who read this passage to pray, lead us not into temptation, he's teaching the importance of praying for perseverance in the time of temptation, ever before temptation is even a reality. In fact, the prayer is even more forceful then God keep me from falling into temptation, although that's not a wrong way to understand it. More likely, what what Jesus is saying is along the lines of teaching us to pray, along the lines of do not, God, do not even allow as a possibility in your will that you would lead us to be tempted or to be tested. The very wording of the prayer, though, do not lead us to temptation, almost begs the question, does God himself intend to lead us into temptation? Does he intend to lead us into situations where we will be tempted? Where we are to pray, God, do not lead us into temptation. Does that mean that he wants to or desires to? The biblical answer to this question is emphatically no. God does not tempt us to sin. Nor does he lead us into situations where temptation will befall us. Where where we know that we will fall into temptation. The same word, interestingly enough, for temptation here is used several times in other places of the New Testament, but but maybe most forcefully in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, where we read this. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, same word that Jesus uses, let let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So thus, in praying to God, do not lead us into temptation, Jesus is not teaching that God would desire to lead us into temptation or to be tempted or to be tried such that we would fail in sin. But rather, God... Uh, it, it, we see here that God is not in this way the, the author of evil or of sin, he, uh, but it is our own will, is our own sinful desires. It's even the work of Satan himself tempting that leads us into sin. And so we pray, God, do not lead us into temptation. But here, friends, is an important truth of Scripture, I think, for us to understand, to come to grips with, to glean from this passage. 
That though God does not tempt us to sin, and we can say that that is perfectly biblical and right to understand, neither does God cause us to be tempted. He has at one point in time led one man to temptation. Jesus, the very Son of God, teaching us to pray preventatively for perseverance in times of temptation, himself was led by God to be tempted. We read this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 1. You can maybe flip back just one page in your Bibles. After Jesus is baptized by John in the River Jordan, we read this, Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Rather than trying to do interpretive backflips to somehow harmonize what Matthew says here with what James has said about God not tempting anyone, we should rather take Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, I think, at face value, that God did lead Jesus into a situation where he would be tempted. God did take his own son to a place where Satan would tempt him to sin, where the devil himself would dangle before Jesus' eyes in the most tantalizing way, the possibility of disobeying his father and yielding to sin. And yet even then, even there in the wilderness, the perfect son of God perfectly resists temptation. In that moment, when Jesus is victorious over temptation in the wilderness three times in the face of Satan, it is not to teach us a strategy for dealing with temptation, but rather quite more to show us that he and only he as the son of God made human is the only one who has ever overcome temptation. Jesus temptation in the wilderness, God leading his own son to be tempted by the devil is to display for us the grand truth that Jesus is in every way, a perfect and sinless savior. Brothers and sisters know this. Jesus death and resurrection are not the only things he does in the place of sinners. Jesus' death and resurrection are not the only things he does in the place of sinners. Jesus also victoriously rebuffs the devil and rejects temptation on your behalf. By his perfect resistance to temptation, as opposed to sinners' unsuccessful resistance, we fall to temptation all all the time. We succumb to Satan's wiles and his schemes constantly. As opposed to our unsuccessful resistance of sin... Jesus, in his perfect resistance to temptation, has given to sinners a perfect mediator, has become to sinners a perfect intermediary who can bring us, sinful as we are, to God by his own righteousness and his own resistance to temptation. So we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, he, that is Jesus, the Christ, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. So then because we know that we are weak in the face of temptation, we recognize our, our moral weakness when we are being tempted, that we have been weak in times of temptation. We should also pray for perseverance in the time of temptation, in a way that asks for God's preventative grace to keep us ever from being tempted. Just as we know daily we need God's forgiveness for sins that we have committed, we likewise daily recognize that we are unable to resist temptation on our own when it does come. And even worse, that at times we, we are the very ones who tempt ourselves to sin. So being so fully acquainted with our weakness, we cry out, God, would you not allow us 
would you not allow as a possibility of your will that we would be tested or tempted? God, keep those things far from us because we are not like Jesus. We are not perfect. And as surely as we have failed, we surely shall fail again. Lord, keep temptation far away. Lead us not into temptation. Friends, as we look just at this first clause of this final verse of the Lord's Prayer, I want us to know and to recognize, to, to apply this to our lives in this way, that, that we would, we should seek to pray daily that God would prevent temptation, temptation to sin from ever becoming a reality in our lives. Pray daily that God would prevent temptation. The old adage goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Or, if you prefer, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. There, there is good wisdom, right, in doing things before a situation uh, comes along, doing things to prevent uh, a bad situation. You eat your vegetables today so you don't have high cholesterol tomorrow. You go to the gym today, some of us, so that you uh, will uh, have good visits at the cardiologist later, right? We do things today in a preventative way, uh, seeking to, to avoid negative consequences of things uh, that, that may come later. So in the same way, Jesus teaches us to pray preventatively when it comes even to sin. We pray ahead of time. God, I I know that temptation is always on the horizon in my life. But I am asking that in as much as you can and as much as you will, keep me from that. Because I know that if it comes, when it comes, I'm not going to stand on that day. So I'm praying now ahead ahead of time that, God, you would not even allow temptation to come my way. Jesus teaches us to pray preventatively for perseverance and holiness. He teaches us also in the second half of this verse to pray proactively for perseverance. That's an easier word to say than preventatively. Pray proactively for perseverance and holiness. He says, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is in this verse a prayer of contrast. Do you see that? On the one hand, we are to pray that God would not lead us to temptation. And on the other hand, we are to pray that God would deliver us from evil when we should find ourselves in the midst of temptation. Some translations differ on how the last couple of words here are to be translated. Now, the English Standard Version just says, deliver us from evil. But some of the translations you may be reading from, if it's not the English translation, would say, deliver us from the evil one. Based on the grammar of the original language, I think deliver us from the evil one is the better translation. This means what you likely think it means. Jesus is instructing that we pray for rescue in times of temptation from the wiles, from the schemes, from the manipulations of Satan himself. Deliver us from the evil one. Rescue us from the evil one. Satan, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What an image of what Satan is like. If you've ever watched a Discovery Channel uh, uh, or National Geographic special on lions or on predators, you know how ferocious those animals can be in the wild. Maybe you've even had the opportunity to go on safari and you've seen lions in the wild. Most of the time they're sleeping. They probably weren't eating anything. But when a lion is in hunt, there's nothing that can deter him or her from catching that animal that it is chasing and from killing it. Peter says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because Satan's tricks and tempting ways are evident even from Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible. 
in his deception of Eve and of Adam. And because Satan is so successful in convincing us that to sin is better than to obey God, we need to pray diligently for God's rescue from him in times of temptation. But two brothers and sisters, you should recognize, I hope you would, that just as James has shown us in James 1, 13 to 15, sometimes we need to be rescued from the sin and evil of our own hearts. Sometimes we are the evil one that we need to be rescued from. Paul laments this reality in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. This reality that we, as, as sinful people saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, still struggle with sin. We have a, a heart that, that is still conditioned by sin, still wants to chase after sin. So Paul laments in Romans 7, beginning in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that is in my my hands, my feet, my desires, my motions, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will deliver, who will save me from this body of death? This then is the prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray, deliver us from evil. He says, God, I, he, he's teaching us to pray a prayer like this. God, I know that either by Satan's schemes or by my own sinfulness, I will find myself tempted to sin. I know that it's coming. It's on the horizon. And so on that day, God, I pray that you would rescue me from the evil one, whether it is Satan or myself, the evil one from without who seeks to devour my soul. Rescue me also from the evil one within that is my own heart that, that leads me into temptation. And so here again, church, is another delightful truth that Jesus who resisted temptation on your behalf stands also ready to rescue you from your sin and present you wholly to God. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a high priest, uh, speaking again of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has been there. He's done that. He's overcome. He's got more than a t-shirt. He's got the keys to the park. Let us then with confidence, the writer of Hebrews continues, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is teaching you, Christian, to pray proactively for perseverance and holiness, knowing that Christ who overcame stands to rescue you from temptation as well. So Christian, uh, friend, pray daily. Pray daily for God's rescue from from the temptation that you know is coming. Pray daily for God's rescue from the temptation that you know is coming. We said earlier, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. A little bit of prevention today will keep you from having to go through the, the, the process of being cured of a disease or of a sickness. But friends, when sickness comes, you want the pound of cure and you want it fast. When you find yourself in the time of temptation, you're not praying for prevention. You are praying for a cure. You are praying for rescue. And so knowing that temptation will come, we pray preventatively. God, keep it far from us as much as you can, but as much as you will. But God, if you desire that we go into temptation, 
We pray also you would rescue us in the midst of it because we don't trust ourselves to persevere in holiness. Pray preventatively. Pray proactively for perseverance. Now I'd like to turn our attention to, again, the whole context, the whole passage that we've read this week in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, as we conclude this series on prayer, the series on the Lord's Prayer. We've seen a lot of things over the last three weeks, but one thing that, that I want to make sure that we don't miss is the God-centeredness of the kind of prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray. As we reflect on, the, last, on the, the five verses that we have looked at over the last several weeks, I want us to be sure that when we pray, we are praying complete God-centered prayers. Praying complete God-centered prayers. As we conclude this series, I very much want us to recognize a few key things about this passage that we often assume, but I think are worth saying explicitly. First of all, Jesus is teaching us a manner and a heart with which to pray, not a magical formula for getting God to do our bidding. The Lord's Prayer is not a, is not a magical thing that you can pray to suddenly get God's attention or to find yourself in His good graces. The Lord's Prayer is not in and of itself a thing that brings forgiveness for your sins. Only faith in Christ does that. So we don't pray the Lord's Prayer seeking, seeking to, to uh, manipulate God, but rather to, to have our hearts manipulated by Him in prayer, to have our hearts shaped and changed by the work of God. Jesus is teaching a manner and a heart with which to pray, not a magical formula for getting God's attention. Secondly, Jesus is teaching a way to pray, not specific words to pray. Okay? Now, you can pray... The words from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, you can pray them verbatim and pray them rightly and God will honor that prayer. But you can also pray the exact same uh, words in the wrong way with the wrong heart in such a way that God will not hear that prayer. So the words in and of themselves have very little to, to, uh, to do with how God hears our prayers, but the words themselves teach us what sort of way we ought to pray. Thirdly, Jesus is teaching us finally and completely in all of these things, to be mindfully centered on God in all that we pray. Now, I've tried to draw this out over the last several weeks, but I want to do it very explicitly and very clearly as we close this sermon, that Jesus, this sermon series, that Jesus is teaching us to be mindfully centered on God in all that we pray. First of all, he taught us in verses 9 and 10 to pray with perspective to the person of God to his purpose, and to his purposes above all else. There in verses 9 and 10, we read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has taught his disciples to pray with perspective to God's person, to his holiness, to his purposes. Far from a formulaic introduction to our prayers or a passing address to God, this has taught us that God alone is a perfect father to those who call on Christ for salvation. That our Father who is in heaven loves and cares for his children and desires a relationship with him. He is also not like our earthly fathers. He is holy. We saw that two weeks ago. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are perfectly pure and always right. His holiness sets our sinfulness in its rightful contrast. And it reminds us of our need of his grace each day. Because he is Father. Because he has authority over us. 
Because he is holy and always right, we are to pray most especially for his perfect will and his righteous kingdom to rule and to reign on this earth through the hearts of those that are already trusting Jesus and through the hearts of those who have yet to trust Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord over all. We are to pray with perspective to the person of God, to his purposes above all else. In verses 11 and 12, last week, We saw that Jesus is teaching us to pray for what you need to the God who provides perfectly. He's teaching us to pray mindfully God-centered prayers. And we pray to the God who provides perfectly for what we need today. We have learned that we're to pray for provision. As Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Is a prayer that reminds us of God who provides day by day and in perfect measure and in perfect timing according to his perfect will. Relying daily upon God for daily provision, we saw, serves also to remind us that more than food for our bellies, we need bread for our souls. We need the living bread, the bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus himself, who himself says he is the bread of life, who has come from heaven that gives eternal life to all who believe in him. Jesus taught us also to to pray, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. This is likewise a prayer that reminds us of how how desperately we need, how desperately we rely upon the forgiveness of our sins by God. Daily provision is not just in, in food and in shelter and in clothing, those physical daily needs, but we're to pray for the daily provision of God's forgiveness for our sins that we need all the time. We need all the time to be forgiven of our moral failings which have so dramatically separated us from our God, from our Holy Father. This is truly our greatest need. This forgiveness that we pray for each day, we are reminded, comes only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, where he died to pay the debt of our sin that we have incurred. The forgiveness of, God, the forgiveness of sins and, and the promise of infinite reconciliation that we have with God through faith in his son Jesus and through submission to him as Lord shapes our hearts and lives to love this forgiving God and to likewise love giving and extending this kind of forgiveness to others. And so we pray, God, help our lives to clearly illustrate the kind of extravagant forgiveness that you have shown us. Pray with perspective to who God is. We're to pray for provision to the one true God who provides perfectly. And thirdly, as we've seen today, Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer to pray for God's help to persevere in holiness and to avoid sin. Friends, God, our Father in heaven, is holy. And his people, as 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, are to be holy even as Our God in heaven is holy. To be holy is to be without sin. And to avoid sin, we need also to avoid even temptation to sin. Because in our weakness, we fall. We fail in temptation all the time. Church, holiness is the call of every follower of Jesus. Holiness is the call of every follower of Jesus. Jesus. But in our own efforts... We cannot be holy. We can't be perfect. We can't be sinless. For our hearts constantly chase after idols. Our hearts constantly go after lusts and greed and self-preservation and the authority to determine for ourselves what is right and good. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Then becomes the daily prayer of the Christian who rightly understands his or her own sinful heart. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil becomes the daily prayer of the Christian who rightly understands the weakness of his flesh, 
to be holy. Such is a prayer when rightly prayed reveals the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the follower of Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit which changes us to desire holiness more than sin and to recognize just how close we are to falling into temptation and into sin every moment of every day. Friend, just because you're in church this morning does not mean you're not in in danger of falling into temptation. You can be sinning in your heart and in your mind right now. And so we pray preventatively for perseverance in this pursuit of holiness by asking rightly for our loving Father's protection from times of temptation. God, keep those things ever from happening. Also knowing that by our own sinful desires, by the work of Satan himself, we shall in this life find ourselves in times of temptation. Because we know that, we pray proactively for God's gracious deliverance, for his rescue from the influence of evil when it comes. And so then notice, I pray, the clear focus upon God with which this model prayer teaches us to pray. It is God whom we address. It is him whom we depend on for all things. It is his help that we must have if ever we are to be holy in our character, if ever we are to look like Jesus. So then, Christian, center your life, center your heart on God and the gospel by praying completely God-centered prayers. When you pray to the Lord, you set yourself aside and you seek him. Before ever you bring anything to his throne of grace, ask for anything that you need, you recognize who he is and what he wants and what he desires, what he intends to do in your life. Set yourself as much as you can, the thoughts that that concern you today, set all of that aside and focus on God. Center on God in prayer. And so as we close this sermon series and as we close our time in God's word this morning, that is how we are going to close. We're going to close together in a corporate response of prayer. Over the next few moments, just right where you're at this morning, I invite you.